Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill Briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. The topic today is healthcare reform, the way forward, and we have an excellent speaker with us today. First, I want to bring your attention to the Cato Handbook for Policymakers, which is our comprehensive guide to what we think members of Congress and other policymakers ought to do about issues ranging from healthcare to foreign policy, civil liberties, everything in between. Uh, if you're a Hill staffer, I'd be happy to get you a copy if you don't already have one. And if you don't already have one, then that's kind of a tragedy. Um, I also want to make you aware of the next event that we're going to be doing on the Hill. It's called Are Unions Good for America? And it's related to the most recent issue of the Cato Journal. This one is looking at unionism uh, in America from a lot of different perspectives. And uh, that will be March 31st at noon in B339, right next door. So today we have Michael F. Cannon. He is the Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies. Previously, he served as a domestic policy analyst for the U.S. Senate Republican Policy Committee, where he advised the Senate leadership on health, education, labor, welfare, and the Second Amendment. He holds a bachelor's degree in American government from the University of Virginia and master's degrees in economics and law, and excuse me, he has master's degrees in economics and law and economics from George Mason University. Michael has contributed to the health policy debate significantly over the last 15 months, not to make light of his prior contributions, of course. Cannon is, for example, co-author of Healthy Competition, What's Holding Back Healthcare and How to Free It. It's a book that really solidified my own understanding of healthcare markets and the impediments to their more effective operation. But just since the beginning of 2009, he has published or co-published at least nine policy papers, five chapters of the previously mentioned handbook, dozens of articles in major news outlets and academic journals, scores of blog posts, and innumerable tweets. In addition to providing testimony, giving speeches, making appearances on various television and radio programs, and commissioning some remarkable papers from other scholars. Michael Cannon. Thank you very much, Kurt. Um, Wow, the little edge on this lectern has disappeared, so all of my notes are going to fall to my feet. Okay, um, I want to thank you all for coming today to talk about health care on a day where, um, well, first let me, let me ask, how many of you here, uh, by a show of hands, uh, work for Republican members of Congress? Usually what happens at Cato events. How many of you work for Democratic members of Congress? How many of you work for a Democratic member of Congress who voted for the legislation? Okay, well, if, then this probably is a big moment for you and for the people in your office. And so I want to say congratulations, first of all, because I know that this means a lot to a lot of people. And even though we have our differences, I, um, I, I, I want to congratulate you for, um, for, something that's, uh, for achieving something that has been, uh, well, that is this, this important to, uh, to, to many Democrats. Now, earlier this month, I said to, I said to Kurt, we should put together a Hill briefing so that we can explain to congressional staff uh, on the House to, to House staff what the Senate, what's really in the Senate bill, what their bosses would really be voting for if they voted for the Senate bill. When can we get a room? And uh, Kurt said, well, there's a room available on March 9th. 
But it was still, it was already you know getting close to March 9th. He said there's it'd be hard to promote the event, get a good crowd. We should really uh, go for the next available room, which is on March 22nd. So I said, okay, we'll be able to promote the event. We'll really be able to deliver uh, our uh, an important message about what's in the the, the Senate health care bill. Um, we changed the invitations to make them. Uh, but about a week ago, we started to think, gosh, what if the House passes the Senate health care bill before our event? So we. Uh, we changed the invitations, made them vague enough so they'd still apply to whatever happened this weekend. And so until last night, I wasn't quite sure what I would be talking about today, but I knew that I would have plenty to talk about either way. So uh, I wanted to start by congratulating uh, those to whom this, uh, this day means so much. Uh, I think this debate has been marked by considerable rancor on both sides. And those of us who are disappointed by the outcome, I think, need to take a deep breath and reach out to our opponents, congratulate them, and uh, each side needs to remind, uh, needs to remember that its opponents are good people who come to this debate with good intentions. Now, of course, we who oppose this legislation believe that the bad news uh, uh, far outweighs the good. But we should be clear-eyed about both the good news and the bad news. The good news is the Obama health plan would provide medical care to many Americans who would otherwise be unable to purchase it. It would do that. The bad news, well, the bad part of the bad news is that the Obama health plan would inhibit our ability to meet the basic human needs of an even greater number of Americans. It would deny needed medical care to millions, even as it causes health care costs to rise. It would sap individual initiative, destroy jobs, trap the poor in poverty and dependence, block innovation, and politicize matters that should not be politicized. And on the whole, I think when you look at the good and bad, uh, it will deprive Americans of their freedom and leave our nation both sicker and poorer. Now, the good part of the bad news is that the worst elements of the Obama health plan did not take effect for almost four years. Now, that leaves time to educate the public about those harmful elements and hopefully time to repeal them. So I want to discuss what I think are the worst elements of this law and how we might keep the worst elements from seeing the light of day. The worst elements are three. One is the individual mandate which would force nearly all Americans to obtain health insurance. Two, the price controls that are part of uh, the, the law that, would, that, were, that Congress would impose, impose on private health insurance. And three, the $1 trillion or more in taxpayer subsidies for health insurance, including the expansion of the Medicaid program. Now, the individual mandate, why do I say that that's dangerous? I submit that it's dangerous because it's an unconstitutional threat to our freedom, because it would impose uh, $1.5 trillion unfunded mandate on the private sector because uh, it would increase health insurance costs as it has in Massachusetts and because it gives government to the power to control all aspects of our health care sector. What supporters usually refer to as a ban on uh, discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions is in fact uh, a price control scheme that this law would impose on health insurance markets. Health insurance companies would have to charge everyone of a given age the same premium, say $10,000, whether they cost $5,000 or $25,000 to insure. That, that is a price control scheme, and it's dangerous because it will destroy innovation, eliminate comprehensive health insurance plans, according to research by uh, advisors to President Obama, and encourage insurance companies to deny care to the sick, to avoid those $25,000 patients, to shortchange them so that they will leave their health plans and bring down the bottom line of another insurer. And finally, the trillion dollars in government subsidies. That's dangerous not just because of the tax burden that uh, those subsidies would impose, 
but also because the way those subsidies are, are structured, they have the potential to trap millions of Americans in poverty and dependence on government. So these are, uh, I submit, the dangerous, most dangerous elements of the Obama plan, not the only dangerous elements, but the most dangerous elements, and they are the provisions that would effectively socialize medicine in the United States, even if we continue to call ours a private health care sector. Fortunately, it will be another four years before these elements really take effect. Now, I submit that those who oppose this approach to health care reform, libertarians, conservatives, Republicans, anyone who uh, advocates limited government, should not spend an ounce of energy trying to repeal other elements of the Obama health plan. For example, the cuts in Medicare spending. A lot of Republicans made a big deal about this. This is one of the, their main objections to the legislation. But really, Medicare it has a, an unfunded liability around $80 trillion. If we are not going to restrain Medicare spending, then we are going to have to increase taxes. The Congressional Budget Office estimates we would have to double income tax rates by mid-century in order to pay for that and other uh, promises that the federal government has made. Our response to pleas from lobbyists and seniors uh, who want to reinstate those cuts must be what they always should be. To answer access problems, uh, the answer to access problems in Medicare is not for Congress to spend more, but for Congress to reform the Medicare program. And when the, I would also suggest that when the indoor tanning industry, the pharmaceutical lobby, medical de device manufacturers, health insurers, and so forth, complain about the taxes the Obama, in the Obama plan that would uh, uh, be rolled out over the next several years, we should, of course, work alongside them to repeal those taxes, but only within the context of efforts to repeal the spending. Unless you reduce government spending, you're not really reducing taxes. If you pay for government spending with deficits, all you're doing is kicking those tax, taxes down the road. Now, there are uh, a number of things that I think this, this is going to be a very daunting challenge if we're going to try to repeal the Obama health plan. But I think there are a number of things that are working in our favor. Uh, repealing the Obama health plan is going to require years of focused, dedicated effort. It will certainly be an uphill climb. But there are dynamics that will work in our favor, things that we can do to improve the odds of repeal and things that will happen between now and uh, 2014 when those three elements will take effect that will help us make the case for repeal. One of those things is, uh, one of those dynamics is that really the Obama health plan is like a house of cards. If you pull away either the individual mandate or the price controls, or the trillion dollars in subsidies, the, the other two elements of that plan collapse. So let's talk about the individual mandate and how we might uh, address that. You may already be reading in the papers that there are going to be constitutional challenges to the individual mandate. I uh, have, have written uh, with one of our constitutional scholars that uh, the individual Congress is the Constitution, or I should say the states through the Constitution, do not delegate to Congress the power to require American citizens to purchase a private product. If Congress has the power to uh, force us to purchase health insurance, it has the power to force us to purchase anything, spinach or Ferraris or whatever it comes up with. Um, there will be constitutional challenges to this law. There are, uh, there are laws on the books in Virginia. I think Idaho and Utah have passed a law requiring their attorneys general to challenge this law on constitutional grounds. The state of Arizona will be voting on a constitutional amendment to its state constitution in November that would uh, block the operation of any uh, fe federal health insurance mandate within Arizona. Obviously, these are not settled constitutional issues. They will have to be litigated. But any successful uh, uh, 
legal challenge to the individual mandate brings down the whole House of Cards. There are other things that members of Congress can do. For example, one of the ways that this legislation was able to uh, obtain 219 votes in the House and 60 votes in the Senate was the authors of this legislation very carefully hid its full cost. In 1993 and 1994, President Clinton advanced a very similar uh, package of, of, of health care changes that would have required, it included an individual mandate and an employer mandate requiring individuals and employers to purchase health insurance. In 90, 1994, the Congressional Budget Office included those, the cost of those private sector mandates in its official cost estimate of the Clinton Health Plan. That helped to kill the Clinton Health Plan, and so the authors of the Obama Health Plan were very careful. They very systematically gamed the CBO's rules to prevent those costs from appearing in the, in the uh, CBO's official cost estimates of the Obama Health Plan. In the Clinton Health Plan, those private sector mandates accounted for about 60% of the total costs of the bill. So if the subsidies in, uh, if the on-budget cost of the Obama Health Plan is about $1 trillion, that suggests that the total cost of the Obama Health Plan over the first 10 years would be $2.5 trillion, and that by hiding uh, the cost of the private sector mandates, they've effectively hidden $1.5 trillion of the cost of the Obama health plan. Just because the CBO hasn't scored those hidden taxes to date doesn't mean they cannot score them in the future, sometime between now and 2014. A change to the unfunded uh, mandates reform act, that's the one that requires the CBO to report whether the unfunded state or private sector mandates in a uh, piece of federal legislation exceed a certain threshold. That law can be changed to require the CBO to estimate the actual cost rather than just report whether it exceeds a very minimal threshold. Uh, the, it was done for the Clinton health plan, it can be done for the Obama health plan, and that will help to make the case against the individual mandate when we finally tell the American people just how costly a tax this is. Um, also, uh, we can remind Americans uh, that the individual mandate will cause their health insurance premiums to rise. This year, several mandated be uh, benefits will, uh, will kick in under the Obama health plan. Americans, many Americans will be forced to purchase more coverage in the form of unlimited lifetime benefits, a high, higher annual benefits limits, coverage for preventive care, and coverage for dependents <coughs> up to age 26. Those cannot help but have an impact on health insurance premiums and reminding the American public that that is this, the impact that the individual mandate will have on their premiums as well will help to educate uh, uh, the public about the importance of repeal. There are also legislative steps, and these are more, uh, more uh, substantial than changing the Unfunded Mandates Reform Act, legislative steps that Congress can take to uh, help undermine public support for the individual mandate. I should say undermine. The public already does not support an individual mandate, but this will help uh, make the case against it even further. For example, Congress can make individuals feel the cost of the individual mandate directly by letting them control, by letting workers control, the money that employers currently can, uh, use to purchase their health benefits. Right now, the average family policy that's uh, prov uh, provided by an employer uh, has an average what they call employer contribution of about $10,000. Economists will tell you that that $10,000 that employers spend on their workers' health insurance does not come out of profits, it comes out of the workers' wages. In effect, that's income that the worker has earned but the worker does not get to control. There are tax reforms that, can, uh, that exist because there's a tax preference for employer-sponsored health insurance. 
There are tax reforms that will give that $10,000, give control over that $10,000 to the workers and then let them purchase insurance uh, from their employer just as they did before or from another source. But if individuals control that $10,000, if they are the ones writing the checks to their insurance companies, and then they see their health insurance premiums go up as a result of the individual mandate, that will help build political support for uh, blocking the, the individual mandate from taking effect. Um, also, there's another, uh, and, this is, and this is actually a bread and butter uh, conservative Republican health care reform. Uh, tax credits would achieve this purpose, though I don't think it, they would do so very well. I think there's a better approach that, that would give workers instant control over that $10,000. I call it large health savings accounts. I would be happy to give it a snappier name, but uh, those, those are, that's an idea that Republicans already endorse and that can help undermine uh, support for an individual mandate. Another uh, idea that's been embraced by libertarians, conservatives, and Republicans that can help uh, uh, undermine and block the individual mandate is to define qualified coverage under that mandate as any health insurance policy that's offered anywhere, uh, I'm sorry, that's licensed by any state in the union and to have no other federal restrictions on that coverage. Now, what do I mean by that? If the federal government's going to require Americans to purchase health insurance, it has to define what satisfies that mandate. It has to come up with a minimum benefits package that satisfies that requirement. That is where most of the mischief is done uh, by an individual mandate because healthcare providers who want to ensure that their services, that, that consumers are forced to purchase their services, lobby the government to make sure that their services are part of that mandated benefits package. It could be chiropractors, podiatrists, acupuncturists, what have you. We've seen a lot of this at the state level, even without individual mandates. Massachusetts enacted an individual mandate in 2006, and since that time, uh, providers have lobbied for another 16 types of uh, uh, particular benefits to be added to that minimum benefits package. But if we change the, the, uh, the, the, the definition of a minimum benefits package, from whatever Congress says it is or whatever the Secretary of HHS says it is to whatever any state in the union says it is so that if a state that doesn't have many mandated benefits or doesn't have the sort of price controls that uh, Congress would impose on health insurance, uh, if those policies are available in those states, then American uh, consumers can avoid the costs, uh, uh, the high costs that a federal definition of, uh, of qualified coverage would impose on them by purchasing health insurance from, uh, that, that's regulated by a state that doesn't impose unwanted costs on consumers. Again, this is, a, this is a bread and butter Republican idea, the idea of purchasing health insurance across state lines, letting consumers choose the state that regulates their health insurance can help, uh, can show consumers uh, and voters the benefits of uh, competition, of regulatory competition, and help undermine support for the individual mandate. Um, what about the price controls? That very, uh, that very reform allowing people to choose the state that regulates their health insurance, as I suggested before, can, monitor, uh, can undermine uh, uh, the, the federal price controls in the Obama plan. There are other steps that could be taken as well. For example, this year, insurance companies, I think six months from when President Obama signs uh, his health care uh, legislation into law, insurance companies will be required to uh, provide, uh, to offer health insurance to any uh, to all children regardless of pre-existing conditions. Now that cannot help but have an impact on premiums. Either insurance companies will offer children, th those families or with, who have children with pre-existing conditions, uh, very expensive premiums or those premiums 
or the cost of that very expensive coverage will raise the premiums of uh, others in the individual market. Uh, monitoring the premiums in the individual market and making the case that this is what those price controls do, they increase premiums and, and uh, uh, will help uh, build the case against those price controls, and also showing that those price controls encourage insurance companies to deny care to those very children uh, will undermine support for those price controls. In addition, this year, Congress, uh, the, 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 the Obama health plan would kick off uh, what are called high-risk pools. These are distinct programs that are offered to, that will be uh, uh, distinct subsidies that will be offered to adults who have pre-existing conditions and cannot obtain health insurance um, in the marketplace. The very presence of those high-risk pools will uh, uh, undermine the need uh, for the price controls that uh, Democrats would impose on the rest of the, uh, on the health insurance market with a goal toward providing health insurance to, uh, for those with pre-existing conditions. Now, what about those uh, government subsidies? Well, actually, there, uh, one thing that's going to help uh, um, argue against letting those uh, subsidies for health insurance take effect, that the Medicaid expansion and the subsidies, what I've called a, uh, uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, uh, well, a, a massive bailout of private insurance companies, is the fact that our deficit is going to worsen uh, as a result of these subsidies. Congress, I, 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 I think it's safe to say it's not going to follow through on all of the spending cuts in the Obama health plan. Uh, health care providers will be able to get those uh, cuts reinstated. This uh, legislation will increase the deficit. Congressman Paul Ryan uh, <laughs> obtained a CBO cost estimate that showed that, uh, this let, that if you peel away some of those unreasonable assumptions about those cuts um, actually taking effect, uh, the CBO reported that, yes, this legislation will increase the deficit. The fact that the deficit is going to worsen, the fact that uh, Moody's is suggesting that uh, the United States bond rating could be lowered for its uh, triple, current AAA rating and that that would increase our, uh, the cost of managing our record um, deficits and debt is going to build a case. It will help us build a case for not letting those subsidies to take effect. It's much easier to eliminate subsidies that haven't taken um, – that, that haven't – uh, taken effect yet, spending that hasn't yet gone out the door, than it is to uh, eliminate uh, subsidies that are already being enjoyed uh, by this group or that. In addition, and I alluded to this earlier, those same subsidies in the way that they're structured would create a f implicit tax rates on low-income workers in excess of 100 percent. A low-income worker under the Obama health plan, who earns another $1,000 or another $2,000, might get to keep just 20 cents of each additional dollar they earn. They might get to keep none of it. They may even end up worse off financially for having increased their incomes. Uh, that is go those uh, implicit tax rates are going to uh, create a what economists call a low-wage trap and trap a lot of people. They certainly have the potential to trap millions of people in poverty and dependence on government. Highlighting to the public the, I would argue, cruelty of trapping people in poverty and dependence will help uh, build uh, public support for not allowing these mandates to take effect. And uh, with regard to – and I, I would just throw in here that uh, there's another bread-and-butter Republican proposal that, that can be adopted here, which is to just ref to reform the Medicaid program. Uh, to deal with uh, uh, Medicaid, uh, runaway Medicaid spending, reform the Medicaid program the way that Congress reformed uh, the very similar uh, AFDC cash assistance program in 1996. 
it likewise created uh, incentives for states to make more people dependent on government. It created a, uh, a, a low-wage trap uh, that, um, that made it more uh, – that eliminated any incentive for people to try to climb out of poverty, any financial incentive. And uh, states have been the uh, welfare reforms that Congress enacted in 1996, which essentially block granted that AFDC program, eliminated that incentive for states to enroll more people in, um, in uh, cash assistance and make them dependent on government, has been highly successful. Poverty rates fell. They remain lower uh, than they were in the years leading up to that reform. And there's evidence that the same thing would happen if Congress block granted Medicaid. Along the way, in our efforts to educate the public about the effects of the Obama health plan, I think that uh, one of the most useful tools that we have is actually the fact that the, the Obama health plan has already been enacted in Massachusetts. And we already have a couple of years of experience uh, uh, with the effects of the Obama health plan there, and we will get more experience uh, between now and uh, 2014. So uh, we have to keep turning to Massachusetts in the coming years and ask Americans whether they want their health insurance premiums to be as high as they are in Massachusetts, which has the highest health insurance premiums of the nation. Asking Americans whether they want their premiums to rise as rapidly as they are in Massachusetts, uh, which has the, rap, uh, the fastest rate of uh, premium growth in the nation. We should be asking whether they want the, their government to deny them medical care, as Massachusetts plans to do with price controls and a Canadian-style payment system. That, it, uh, that many in the legislature are trying to impose on the entire Massachusetts market. These things are the inevitable result of the Obama health plan, and every bit of news out of Massachusetts will help uh, the rest of the nation avoid this disaster. And in general, I think that we, we need to remind the American public that this law is causing the premiums to rise. Uh, in, in the coming years, there will be new taxes on pharmaceuticals, medical devices, insurance policies, and we have to mark with fanfare every one of those taxes and remind the American people that those are causing their insurance premiums to rise. For example, there will be a tax this year on indoor tanning services. Okay, maybe that's not covered by insurance. But still, uh, that will be the first tax of the Obama health plan. Next year, 2011, taxes on consumer-directed health plans, medical devices, insurance companies, employers who provide retiree health benefits. Uh, in 2012, I don't think much uh, kicks in in the way of taxes, but in 2013, People with very low incomes and or very high medical bills will pay a new tax. There will be taxes if, uh, the, if the Senate fails to block the tax on high-cost health plans uh, that uh, the House passed last night. Then there will be uh, a tax on, uh, on people who, whether they're sick or for whatever reason, face very high health insurance premiums. That will take effect in 2013. There will also be taxes on high-income earners that take effect in 2013. And, of course, in 2014, the individual and employer mandates, which are the largest hidden taxes in this legislation, will take effect. And every step of the way, I think it will be important to remind the, pu the public that uh, of what President Obama said last night, this is what change looks like. Now, there's going to be resistance, of course. This is not going to be an easy effort. Supporters of the Obama plan are not going to sit back and let opponents dismantle it. They already have a scapegoat that will explain every problem the new law creates. Every time premiums rise, uh, every time the Obama plan causes premiums to rise, every time it encourages insurance companies to, to deny care to the sick, the problem will not be the Obama health plan. It will be those dastardly evil private health insurance companies who are just responding to the uh, incentives that the Obama plan creates. Now, since there are a lot of Republicans in the room, uh, I, a lot of Republicans may be wondering, they may be shell-shocked this morning, they may be wondering how this happened, and I think it's important to be clear-eyed about this as well. Uh, 
Remember that a Republican president endorsed an employer mandate, an employer health insurance mandate in the 1970s. Conservative Republicans in think tanks endorsed an individual mandate in their alternatives to the Clinton health plan in 1993 and 1994. Republicans held power for years in Washington in the 1990s and in the past decade, and they showed little interest in restraining government, little interest in, uh, in uh, reducing uh, the deficit, at least um, since the Bush administration. They passed tax cuts that did nothing to reduce the size of government and created new entitlements that expanded federal spending and deficits. They suppressed valid cost estimates of their entitlement programs by threatening to fire federal employees who stood in their way. They abused the legislative process by holding a vote open on that Medicare Part D entitlement program for three hours in the House of Representatives rather than the traditional 15 minutes so they could change the outcome of the vote. Many Republicans still express sympathy for the price controls in the Obama plan, even though those price controls cannot work without the individual mandate and massive government subsidies that they oppose. And a Republican governor and a conservative think tank enacted the Obama plan in Massachusetts in 2006. That former governor still maintains that plan was a good idea, even as he, even as he vows to repeal the national version of his own plan. Republicans' objections to the substance of the Obama health plan and the process were weakened by their past behavior. Democrats knew it, and they exploited it. And that's part of why uh, the Obama plan is now going to become law. So I think there's a lesson here for Republicans and conservatives. If you endorse a new government mandate or a subsidy or a regulation today, your opponents will make it a law tomorrow. If today you hold, withhold material from the American people or play shell games with the federal budget or abuse congressional rules, your opponents will do the same thing tomorrow. Whatever you do today, your, your opponents will do it to you tomorrow, and you should behave accordingly. Now, if we are to attempt to repeal the Obama health plan, it is going to require a considerable commitment Every member of Congress, every political committee, every think tank, every industry association, every media outlet, and every ideological group that seeks to repeal this legislation is going to have to devote resources to the effort. It's going to have to devote staff members to the effort. Um, and it's going to have to wage a sustained campaign for the next four years to educate the American people about what this would do to their health care, to their health insurance premiums, to their uh, livelihoods and their incomes and the effects that it will have for years to come on uh, their children and their grandchildren. I think this vote does not end the debate over whether economic freedom or socialism is more effective at providing medical care to the sick and to the needy. What it signifies is that a small minority of the American public has put the rest of the nation on the wrong side of that debate, perhaps for decades to come, but not necessarily because I believe this can be undone. So, with that, I thank you all for coming, and I'm happy to take any questions.